today we come once again to honor you, to give you glory, to seek your will, to hear your word. We surrender ourselves for a moment to devotion to you. And we pray, Lord, that we can be so surrendered throughout every hour of every day of our lives. But in this hour of worship, Lord, we come together as one body, one family of faith to honor our King, Lord Jesus, to intentionally enter the household of our Heavenly Father and to be reinvigorated and revived by the Holy Spirit so that we can live lives that please you and think and do and say things that give you glory. And we understand that you don't crave this glory, but that you have used that terminology to invite us to experience an abundant life of joy and peace and hope and we understand, Lord, that it is in glorifying you and dying to our own flesh that we become abundantly blessed and joyful and full of peace. And so, Lord, in that spirit, we come before you asking for your help with those things that divert us from you. Our bad habits, our difficult circumstances, our, our difficult... Uh, external forces in our lives that we have little or no control over, Lord. We ask for your help when the diagnosis comes and we hear the dreaded word cancer again. Lord, we ask for your help when we think of brokenness in families and discord in communities and workplaces. We ask for your help, Lord, in those parts of our lives where we are our own worst enemy. And ask, Lord, that you help us to break addictions and cycles and bad habits. Ask us, asking you, Lord, to help us find new acquaintances and friends and surround ourselves with those who inspire us to do good things in honor of you. Lord, we ask you for the financial blessings that make us able to be a blessing to you. We ask you, Lord, even when the lights go out, to be with us in all things and in all ways. We ask you, Father, to help us to not be so dependent on the world and its systems and its technologies. I might have said that, Lord, even if the lights didn't blink out, because it's always true, Lord. Throughout the history of the church, you have managed to do amazing and incredible things despite the absence of technology and electricity, computers and gizmos and gadgets. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do the same in our lives now. Instead of making us slaves to our tools, let us be the tool in your hands that does the work of evangelism, celebrating the good news of Jesus Christ. 
bringing people under the reign of Christ as the ruler of their thoughts and deeds. Help us to proclaim with our bodies, Lord, with our voices and our, and our surrender to you that there is one Lord and it's you over all of us and all of creation. And then we pray, Lord, that you might hear us when we humbly ask for new life in you every day that supersedes our flaws and weaknesses. And finally, Lord, we join together in the prayer that you gave us that so perfectly sums up everything that we ask. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Is anything dark back there, Courtney? How's your board? It's right now. Okay. But I know That's all right. I will use my nursing home voice until such time as I get amplified. And this sermon is so good that I'm going to get amplified because it just can't help it. I'll preach like we did back in the olden days. Now, we're going to read from the book of Isaiah in chapter 1, and you'll find that reading on uh, page 673, Isaiah chapter 1. I'm beginning to hear myself again. It's lovely. All right, I'll dial it back down just a little bit then. And we're going to read Isaiah. We're going to read verse 1 and then jump down to verse 10. Again, this is from the Revised Common Lectionary Schedule of Readings. Next week, we'll be back in a series mode with the Spirit-Filled Life men's emphasis. So Isaiah begins with this introduction. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And then jumping to verse 20. Uh, excuse me, 10, I, I beg your pardon, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Increase is an abomination. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. 
you new, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am very, I'm weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case or cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So aren't you glad I'm following the Revised Common Lectionary because wasn't that a delightful reading? It really is actually wonderful news. As it is usually my practice to begin with the end in mind, I'll just give you a hint. It comes back around to the last thing that was said in that reading, which is, come reason with me. We can, we can work this out. So keep that in your mind, and then think about this for a minute. You've probably heard that story about a certain clergyman and a certain member of the congregation who were having breakfast together one day, and, and somehow the conversation led to the, to the church member saying, so, so pastor, just how much commitment does the Lord actually expect from me? I know you've heard this one before. So the clergyman points at the plate, and he says, well, look, the, the, the eggs on your plate, the chicken was involved in that process, but the bacon on your plate, the pig was fully committed. Now, with that in mind, I wonder how many of us can honestly say that we've laid a few eggs trying to help the Lord. You know, we've given a little. We've, we've participated in what God was doing, but on a superficial level, and it didn't cost us much but it felt good to contribute. Yet, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That sounds more like the pig's commitment to the bacon on your plate. Paul also says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you begin to understand that he's talking about more of a commitment that's on a spiritual level. You know, not everybody is called to the same extent or to the same mission or purpose in God's economy, but all of us are called to be 100% committed. A.W. Tozer says, I will never be able to love other people in the world until I have mastered my love for God. I think that's the place to start. The first thing you have to do in order to have a 100% commitment to God is to, to fall in love with your creator. And honestly, when it comes to the word love in church, we use it very liberally, but it's important to remember that in the texts that originally 
gave us the scripture, there are variations on the word love. And so we're not talking about being in love with God, Christ, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, in the same way that we're talking about the love between a man and a woman who are married, that sort of thing. But what we're talking about is probably more like a parental love. And who doesn't know what that's like, either as the parent or as the child, you know? And sure, some parents have been more admirable than others, but I will bet that in many, many, if not all cases, even the parent who didn't do a particularly good job gets a certain degree of love and devotion from their children, at least at their time of greatest need. And so we have a better understanding of the love that Tozer's talking about if we understand that we should love God that much, that we should... We should love God and, and not in a superficial way that is built more around gratitude for God's provision. It's not that we shouldn't thank God for provision, but let me ask you something. When you find yourself in a gathering of family and you're with, say, parents who have been very generous in helping you through life, like my parents were for me, how many times are they going to let you say thank you, thank you, thank you before they say, would you shut up and talk about something else? Seriously. Because at some point, it's not thank you that I want to hear. It's not praise for my generosity that I want to hear as a parent who supported my children in their time of need. It's their love that I want to hear, isn't it? They just want, I just want them to know that the reason that I did what I did for them was because I loved them so much. And the best thing they can do to thank me for my acts of love are simply acts of love in return. And so when Tozer talks about being in love with God so that you can be in love with other people, in the Christian sense of the term, he's saying that. He's saying, can you just enter into a rich, intimate relationship with God where your thanks and praise aren't required every time God blesses you if you're regularly experiencing God through prayer and through, through a, a sense of God's presence in the things you do and say, that you would govern your lives as though God is always watching, is even with you, and that this is where the flesh and blood Jesus becomes a very real and viable part of even the uh, post-incarnate world where he no longer lives among us in the flesh. He is with us in the spirit, meaning that for all of us, every walk down a lane is like the walk to Emmaus. Every meal that we break bread with our families, he breaks bread with us like the Last Supper in the upper room. Every time we interact with people on any level, it is as though we are having him as our witness and our partner in the conversation. Now that's loving God that turns into loving others. So when we look at today's text, this is really the meat of the thing. He's, God's made it very clear and, and understand that, that Christ God, the Holy Spirit, all one God, three unique persons. It's something that we call a spiritual mystery. Uh, it means that we don't understand it, but we don't have to understand it to have faith. And therefore, we accept that Christ is as much a part of this conversation 
as God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And what he says to these people in Judah and Israel is your worship reminds me of the worship at Sodom and Gomorrah. Now I want to ask you a question. How would you feel if God delivered you a message that said, yeah, you worship well, but it reminds me of the way Sodom and Gomorrah worship. Now, wouldn't that just crush you? And then he goes on to describe the problem with the way Judah and Israel are worshiping in terms of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know about you, but the first thing that struck me was is that apparently they worshiped God regularly in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, maybe you don't remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So let me take you back to uh, Genesis. In uh, the book of Genesis, Abraham has uh, been told by God through the visitation of none other than the Trinity. God visits Abraham and he, he says to him, look, you're going to... Uh, have a baby, you and your wife, even though you're very, very old. And, and then almost as an afterthought, as they're leaving and they say, they're standing near a tree and they're looking out over the valley down towards where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are. And almost as an afterthought, the, the Lord says to Abraham, and oh, by the way, those two cities are going to get it. I'm going down there to, to, to judge them. And when I've cast my judgment, then they will experience my wrath. And what was it that was so wrong about Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, according to Ezekiel, the Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of iniquity and uh, they were arrogant and they were overfed and they were complacent and they did not help the poor or the needy and they were haughty and committed abominations before God. And then Jude, this is a New Testament writer, says even more about that because he says, and not only that, they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And therefore they're gonna suffer on undergoing punishment of the eternal fire. They're gonna suffer terribly by fire. And by the way, for the sake of those who are in my Wednesday night Bible study, we've been talking about the, the the commentaries of the Jewish rabbis and how that informs it. Here's a pretty good example for you. If we read Genesis, we get one view of what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. We read Ezekiel, who came hundreds of years later, and we get a more complete view. We read Jude, who comes thousand years or so later, and he gives us an even more complete view. And the reason that this happens in your scripture is because these were people who were informed by rabbinical commentary they went to Sunday school class. Well, Saturday school, I guess they'd call it, right? And so just want to let you know that, that this process of commentary on Scripture has been going on since even before there was written Scripture. And so uh, the rabbinical commentary on the Old Testament is a really powerful way for us to know more about what the Old Testament says. So we're never separated entirely from our Jewish roots, even as Christians. Now, back on track here. So we want to remember that this text from Isaiah is talking about Judah and Israel, but God has compared them to Sodom and Gomorrah. So what is he saying about their worship? God is saying, you know, you guys prance around in the courts and, and sing praise and make a lot of noise and do a lot of things that seem worshipful to you, but I find it all detestable. 
And it isn't that he doesn't value, God does value the sacrifices because he understands that as he gave that law of sacrifice to them through Moses, the idea was that they would be genuinely penitent and really repent of their sin. And then in the making of a sacrifice, there was a sense that blood had to be shed in order to make correction and make uh, reconciliation with God. But these guys had turned it into a science and they'd even turned it into something of an abomination, you know? It's a little bit like saying, we're going to sacrifice a bull and then we're gonna have a cookout. You know, it just sort of ruins the spirit of the thing. And so what God's gripe is, as it's described through the prophet Isaiah, is that Sodom and Gomorrah worshiped, but they lived in a way that suggested that they had absolutely no regard for God whatsoever. They worshiped, but they acted like God wasn't paying attention. They were going through the motions, perhaps for the sake of each other. Perhaps they were going to church every week or contributing every week or worshiping, you know, by singing loudly with their voices or whatever, but they were doing it all to impress other people and not for the glory of God. And God's response is, is, you know, I don't get any joy out of that. In fact, I find it offensive. That's what God's saying in this story that we just read is, if you want to really worship in a way that pleases God, the way they did it in Sodom and Gomorrah clearly didn't work. Oh, and if you're not familiar with the story, by the way, fire comes down on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroys them completely, end of story. Oh, there's some drama in the middle, but we're not doing that one today. So it's a, that's, that's your motivation to go home and read the story. You know, so well, I want to know what happened in the middle. Go ahead, go home and read. And then come back and ask me questions and I'll tell you whatever I know. Jesus said, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. And by the way, the very next thing Jesus says in this passage is how to pray, and we do the Lord's Prayer. Now, on another occasion, Jesus is watching some people putting money in the offering plate. And he says this about one of them. He says, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, and she had to live on, all that she had to live on. So you see, the kind of worship that pleases the Lord is full-on commitment. It's worship that's done not for the sake of the people sitting around you or the social group that you go to church with or even for uh, business relationships. You know, when I was a young salesman back in the 1980s, I was encouraged to join the Chamber of Commerce and then I was encouraged to make sure I was involved in a big church because I could do a lot of networking at church. 
That still sticks in my craw, or I wouldn't be telling you this 40 years later, you know. It really seems like a poor reason to go to church. Now, I happen to think networking that happens in the body of Christ is a good thing because we're one family and we're unified in our filled, being filled with the Holy Spirit and our devotion to Christ. So why not do business together? But if going to church is so you can network or be seen, then it may be a less than pleasing kind of worship for the Lord. You see, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. For he will either hate one or, and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God and money. Now, this is a really a conversation about money, but then it all comes back to money, doesn't it? Everything comes back to money. You know the old saying, follow the money. You want to figure something out, follow the money. It's always the secret to understanding the motives and the actions or the inactions. And in all of the conspiracy theories, it always goes back to following the money. But in this case, the Lord says money can't be worshipped at the same time as you worship God. In other words, worship is a singular thing that cannot be subdivided. Christ is saying that if you worship him, and not just on Sunday morning, but every hour of every day of your life, you cannot also worship the things of the flesh. And that's the point. And money is the source of all the, the, it's the way that we get all the things that we want for our flesh. Money buys us the stuff that satisfies our flesh. And so money is the other God. And Christ wants us to understand that. And so he basically says that every excess, no matter how minimal or how depraved, is always coming back to its source of money. You get money in order to get the things that you want. I like the way Frank Viola put it. He said, uh, he said, it's been said that money is the second most frequently mentioned subject, second to idolatry in the Old Testament and to the kingdom of God in the New Testament. And Jesus talked about the deceitfulness of riches for a reason. But here's what I love. He says, riches are deceptive and those who pay homage to the God of Plutus are rarely aware of the hold that money has on them. By the way, Plutus was the Greek god of prosperity and wealth. So all he's saying is, is that where your treasure is, there's where your heart is. You ever stop and think about it? Your mailman and your garbage man know more about your spending habits than anybody else outside your house? Think about it. You ever go out down the, down the lane on the Sunday after, or the, the garbage day after Christmas, you know? By the way, just, just as this, Ron Flowers will want me to remind you that if you put a box out in front of your house right after Christmas that says, I just got a brand new flat screen TV, you're kind of telling the bad guys too, you know? Anyway, I digress. So you see these things, they all seem important to us, and, and, and like our children, we, we kind of, you know, when you're, at the, when you're at the toy store with your little kid, 
The kid says, I need another Barbie doll, Mom. I, I need another baseball bat, Dad, or a new Nintendo game or a new Xbox game or whatever. And, and you know, we adults, well, we go to the car dealership or to the hardware store and we say, I need a new tool. I, I need a better car. Really? Hey, this is one of those sermons where there should be a mirror up here in the front pew so I can tell it to myself too, okay? It is our human weakness to desire satisfaction for our flesh, and it is our spiritual responsibility to our Savior and King, Jesus, to resist those desires, especially where they stand between us and the love of God that we talked about earlier. Idolatry is the number one thing talked about in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, in direct and indirect terms. And basically, idolatry is putting any other thing, any, any earthly thing or created thing, in a higher ranking position than the Creator. Do you worship created things or do you worship the Creator? We are to worship the one who created it all, not the creation itself. And yet I have found in my experience as a pastor that it isn't uncommon to get into major conflicts in the church over the worship of things. Because we worship the church, we worship the building, we, we say this building has always had one of those, it's always been this way or it's always been that way and it gives us great comfort and yet at the end of the day are we not worshiping the things that we bought and built in order to worship the creator of all things. So we must constantly be vigilant against this temptation and we must constantly be willing to humble ourselves even when one of our brothers or sisters enabled by Christ's spirit says, we're worshiping stuff here, let's take a time out and think about that for a minute. It's hard, but this is the heart of the matter. I want you to listen to that last paragraph one more time uh, of the reading from today, but I'm going to read a slightly different version of it. Come, let's talk this over, says the Lord. No matter how deep the stain of your sins, I can take it out and make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you are stained as red as crimson, I can make you white as wool. If you will only let me help you. If you will only obey, then I will make you rich. But if you keep on turning your backs and refusing to listen to me, you will be killed by your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. You see how much the Father loves you? How much the Father longs for you to take the yoke upon you of Christ because it's being yoked to a gentle and benevolent master instead of yoked to the things of the flesh. If you find that you cannot give up your control over your life to the Lord, then you have yoked yourself to your flesh in a way that makes you your own God. If you cannot give up your stuff, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you should leave after church today and go sell your fishing boat. It means that if Christ calls you to let it go, that you would do so without hesitation, just like those fishermen who walked away from their boats when Christ said, come follow me. The Father longs for you. He says, taste and see 
that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So we heard it last week and we're hearing it again this week. God loves you. And God eagerly desires for you to love him back and to, to stop giving superficial lip service to him, but to actually enter into a relationship with him that leads you to his house and to a place of joy and peace that you can only imagine until the day that you have experienced it. And then you'll be like those who have walked that walk. You'll, you'll be grinning all the time and you'll be laughing at difficult situations in a way that you thought was a little bit silly. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Please burn it upon our hearts now so that we can be changed. And, and Lord, help us to surrender our flesh and the things of the flesh. Help us to really take this message to heart from your word to our hearts and let it transform our lives, not just for a little while after church, but for the rest of our days, we pray. Amen.